0: The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. So as you guys know, we this summer we're kind of jumping around a little bit, doing something more topical. Typically, um, if you if you haven't been here for a long time with us at ICC. um we, we tend to go through books when we're pre- doing a preaching series, but this summer, um, we're, we're, pre- we're jumping around on some different topics, and, and this morning, I wanted to speak on, on the mystery of marriage, as it's entitled there, And uh, because marriage is a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and I feel qualified, in some sense, to talk about it, because any of you who uh, have seen me and seen my wife, Kim, it's pretty clear that I married up right? So there's an old Korean proverb that says, if you chop a tree long enough, eventually it will fall. And that's kind of the story of my love life with her. I spent nearly four years pursuing my wife. Some might call this stalking, but in my mind, if she ends up marrying you, then it's not called stalking. It's called courtship, right? So in all seriousness, um, I love talking about marriage. And it's, it's not because I have the perfect marriage It's not because I'm an expert in marriage, but simply because I think it's impossible to talk about marriage and not talk about the gospel. You know, the two are so intertwined that they're inseparable. And I love talking about the gospel. So what I'm going to share, I think, has great relevance, whether you're married, or whether you're single and you're wanting to be married, or whether you're single and not wanting to be married, or whether you're married and not wanting to be married... (laughs) God has a word, I think, for all of us today. And it has very little to do with the institution of marriage itself. And it has everything to do with you and Jesus and the relationship that he desires to share between you and himself. Okay? So let's let's open up an order of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much, again, for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. It's something that we take so granted so many times and yet. That it would hit us, Lord, that we are in the presence of an almighty living God, creator of the universe. And that we can know you and worship you. And that you love us so much that you reveal yourself to us. And your great desire is to be in relationship with us. And so, Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, about a year ago, um, my wife was teaching Sunday school here at ICC in front of about 50 kids, and I was helping her advance some of the slides on her computer in the cafeteria over at Keller, and I'm in the front of the room with her, and I'm sitting on this little kiddie plastic chair, kind of like this, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this lesson, this chair that I'm sitting on literally just explodes, (Laughter) right. and... It wasn't like one of the back legs started to slowly bend. It was like a roadside bomb went off and there were like pieces of plastic chair shrapnel all over the room. And I'm lying on the ground and I look up at all these little kids and they're all pointing and they're laughing at me. (laughs) These are your children. (laughs) I forgive you. But looking back, I realize it's so foolish to think that this little kiddie plastic chair could support all of this, right? And I had faith in that little plastic chair, and I was very disappointed by that little plastic chair. And I share this because all of us are looking for love, right? This is the universal cry of the human heart. And as the great mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal puts it, we all have this God-shaped hole in our hearts that's longing to be filled. And if you believe that you can find someone on this earth, to fill that hole in your heart, apart from God, guess what? You're sitting on a plastic chair. And it's only a matter of time before it explodes. And no one on earth can carry the weight of that burden. Not your parents, not your friends, not your children, not your spouse, not your soulmate. The only one who can bear that burden is the one who created your soul the one who loves your soul, and the one who has come to save your soul. And I'm convinced that God wants us to know this, and he even created marriage for that very purpose. You know, my kids have grown uh, kind of out of children's Bibles now. They're 13, 11, and and 8, but um, if there's one children's Bible that I can recommend without hesitation, it's this one. I think many of you may be familiar with it. It's called the Jesus storybook bible written by sally lloyd jones and we've read this to our kids from cover to cover at least 10 times in their life and if you have young kids and you don't have this please go out and get it it's, it's a great it's a great bible and even if you don't have kids i'd recommend it it's just as part of your own quiet times it's a great read but i want to read an excerpt from the opening chapter because i think the author here she explains the heart of god and the purpose of his word far better than i can it's called the story and the song and opens with this a paraphrase of Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. It says, The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us to know him, and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Amen. You know, the great church reformer Martin Luther said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but on trees and clouds and stars. What is Luther saying? I think he's saying that God doesn't just go to the ends of the earth to convey his love to his beloved. But throughout all of the earth, God has embedded his message of love within creation itself. In other words, for God so loved the world that he created a world to tell the world how much he loves them. And that's startling to me. And this isn't limited to nature, such as trees and clouds and stars, but I think it applies to all of his creation, especially marriage, one of God's greatest creations. And how do I know this? Let's turn to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And before I read this first, I want to provide a little bit of context. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians in this chapter has just given some very practical instructions to both men and women in the church of Ephesus and the the church at large. And he says, husbands, love your wives. And he tells them how. He says, as Christ loves the church. And then he instructs wives to what? Submit to your husbands. How? As the church submits to Christ. And so Paul begins this section in Ephesians by explaining the how of marriage. And now he's about to close it all up by explaining the why. The why of marriage. And isn't that what we all want to know? Because the how provides the model to follow, but the why provides the motivation to follow through. If you're going to memorize one verse on marriage, let it be this one. In Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul ties everything together, and I think he drops this massive truth bomb. And he says, For this reason, or therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the first half of this verse, for this reason, or therefore a man shall leave his mother and father, Paul's actually going to be the very beginning of marriage. And this is the the, the first mention in Genesis chapter 2. And this is important because if you want to understand God's original purpose and design for marriage, you have to first examine God's original design. So one man, one woman, one flesh. That's God's design. Paul then refers to this marriage union as a mystery. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the word mystery, I immediately think of like CSI, Sherlock Holmes, I used to read this this book series called The Three Investigators when I was a younger kid. And it makes me think of something that's difficult to solve, right? Something that requires great knowledge or work to understand. But this is, in my mind, an unfortunate translation because there really is no word in English, I think, that does justice to the word mystery in the original Greek here. I think a closer translation of the word mystery here would be revelation. It's a revealing Because every time Paul uses this word in Ephesians, and in fact all of his letters, it's very clear that he's talking about something that was once hidden, it was once concealed in the past, but has now been revealed. The curtain has been lifted. And God has lifted it with the sending of his son Jesus. So in other words, this is not something that God intended to be hard to solve or difficult to understand. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This is something that God wants me to know. He wants you to know. He wants the church to know. He wants the whole world to know. Right? This is huge. And we know it's huge because um, the word profound in the original Greek is actually megas, when he says this revelation, this mystery is huge. It's megas. Right? And he's saying, listen, listen, guys, this is huge. This is unbelievably huge. You don't want to miss this. And he's unveiling the purpose of marriage, and he's saying, this is a big deal. And Paul tells us that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to be a living picture of Christ and the church. Now, I know that sounds like Bible catechism. That sounds very theological. But what does that actually mean? And how is it relevant to me in my day-to-day life or in my marriage? I think it means that God, in his great wisdom and wonder, created the most supreme love relationship on earth to point us to the greatest love relationship from heaven. In other words, the union between a husband and wife was to reflect and remind us of something far greater the union of Christ and the church. And what does this mean? This means that at its most basic root level, it should remind me of Jesus' relationship or his desired relationship with me, my union with him, Christ and the church. And this is huge because if this is true, it means that there are aspects, aspects of the earthly marriage, right, husband and wife, which should remind us of the divine union, Jesus and me, Christ and his bride. And there are aspects of the divine union that should inform and instruct and inspire how we not just view marriage on earth, but how we do marriage on earth. And as Paul says, this is huge, and so many of us miss this because we've reduced marriage to nothing more than being about me and my personal happiness. right? And it keeps marriage on a very self-serving, very horizontal level. But God designed marriage to reveal something profoundly vertical, his relationship with us, his love for his beloved, Christ in the church. And when our eyes are open to this revelation, we begin to see the telling of a story within marriage itself, and that is the gospel. And when we follow God's design for marriage, our own individual marriages begin to tell that same story to a watching world for the glory of God. And so God created marriage to reveal to the world his great love for his beloved. Now, obviously God created it for procreation. We can, you know, we make children, we have families. God created it for companionship. There's no, there's no doubting that. Genesis 2. And yet, what we learn over time is God reveals his ultimate grand purpose for marriage. It's not just for those things. It's to reveal his love for his beloved. His love for you, for me, for his bride. Now, if God designed the earthly marriage then it, to be a picture of the divine union, then I think it would stand to reason that we should find some meaningful parallels between the two relationships, right? So I want to unpack some of this. And if you're married, let's go back to the very beginning of your marriage, and that's your wedding day. Right? What, what do you think is the most important part of that wedding day? You know... Uh, we spend so much time reflecting over the flowers, the bridal party, the dinner menu, that first dance. The list is really endless. But when I think about my wedding and our planning for it, you know, I realize how little time I actually spent on the most important thing. And if you really think about the entire wedding ceremony, and ultimately the marriage union itself is built upon one thing. It's built on the marriage vows. Right? This is the foundation. And if you were to remove the marriage vows from a wedding ceremony, you really don't have a wedding anymore, do you? And I know that nearly every marriage vow is different, but what almost all marriage vows share in common is a long list of circumstances in which both parties, like husband and wife, they promise to be faithful to one another, come what may, right? So if any of you have been married, or have, if you recall on your wedding day, I'm guessing that you stood in front of your husband or in front of your wife. You looked into each other's eyes. You tried not to cry. And you quoted these vows to one another. And whether you wrote them or not, we see these long list of circumstances. This is, this is probably the most um, cliche-ish wedding vow that you'll find. But we heard this, you know, for better or for worse, this is my promise to you, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part, right? So the purpose of a wedding ceremony is not for the groom and the bride to proclaim their love to one another. It's not like a baptism service, right, where you're professing your faith or you're professing your love. But rather, it's to publicly promise. It's not a profession. It's a promise to one another, right, that regardless of what they may encounter, husband and wife, Whatever the conditions, and until the very end, they will be faithful to that promise. And because these vows are promises that are made for an unknown future, what is required to receive them? You need faith. You need faith. The wedding vows are based on faith because they place trust in a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. So when someone makes these promises, the other must choose to accept that promise by faith, only by faith. And so even the world, I think, recognizes this. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize this because at the very center of the marriage vow, because it uses words such as what? Unfaithfulness, infidelity, when someone has broken their marriage vow. So what is God revealing to the world about his love through his creation of marriage? I think God wants us to know that his love is received by faith. You have to believe. And just as my wife and I entered into a marriage union by faith, the same holds true of my union with Christ. The only way that I can enter into a covenant relationship with him is by faith. I have to believe that he loves me, that he gave himself up for me, and that he is coming back and returning for me. You follow? So this is true of me and my wife, and it's especially true of Jesus and me. And these vows are so important because every couple will, get, will encounter their share of difficult seasons. I guarantee you. And no matter how strong your feelings of love might be on that wedding day, feelings in and of themselves do not possess the power to bind your marriage together for life. It's the vows, it's that promise that serves as the pond, the glue. You know, I I don't want to confess this, but (laughs) one of my guilty pleasures with Kim is watching The Bachelor, The Bachelorette on ABC, Monday nights at 7 p.m., if you're interested. Um, it's like a total train wreck there's nothing realistic about this reality show <laughs> but I don't know for me it's just like this little microcosm of you know humans trying to experience love trying to discover love and, it, and it's kind of sad at some points and yet I listen to these people interview and they go on these one on one dates which are so far from reality to like who knows Tahiti and all these exotic places and you know the, these people are like describing love and they're saying oh, He makes me so happy. She makes me so happy. And you realize that love for them is just nothing more than just a feeling. And so as long as that feeling exists, the relationship's good. What happens when that feeling leaves? Right? So as soon as the feelings end, the relationship typically in this world, in our culture, ends with it. Right? But this is not the kind of love that God is expressing to us through his creation of marriage. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Um, this is a slide of our, my wedding program from 15-plus uh, years ago. Uh, I found it not too long ago on one of my old computers. And um, I was reflecting on it because we just celebrated our 15th year anniversary uh, in April. And I was thinking about this title. It was, it's called The Covenant of Marriage Uniting Kimberly Shim and Peter Cho. And it just hit me that... We call this, even in my, you know, I didn't realize this at the time when I got married, but it's a covenant, right? These promises, these vows, it's a covenant. And what is a covenant but a sacred vow or promise? And marriage vows are essentially a covenant, aren't they? And I think God's desire is for us to understand that the marriage vows that we share on earth are to remind us of the covenant that God desires to share with us. That relationship, that promise. And so here's my first point. I believe God created marriage because He's revealing that His love is bound by a covenant and it's received by faith. His love is bound by a covenant and it's received by faith. You know, one of the first things you'll notice when you read the Bible is that God is a God of covenants, is He not? He loves making promises. He loves keeping his promises. And in fact, this is the primary way in which God has chosen to relate to his people. And you see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. However, all of these covenants in the Old Testament are dwarfed by a new and a better covenant that's promised to come in the New Testament. Right? And the prophet Jeremiah, he tells us in chapter 31 of his book, 31. Verse 31 through 34 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You see, it's no accident that you see this kind of marriage language all throughout the Old Testament when God is referring to his people. Because his desire is for his people to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And so when we get to the New Testament and into Romans, we begin to see some of this unveiling. And we get to some remarkable promises in Romans chapter 8. You may be familiar with this verse. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when I read these verses a a few years ago, it hit me like a ton of bricks. For the first time, I realized that these verses actually read like a traditional wedding vow, don't they? This is a promise to love faithfully through a myriad of circumstances, right? Good and bad, death nor life, angels nor demons, high or low. But notice something here. This covenant transcends our vows, right? Because it's a promise of love that goes beyond the physical. It goes beyond the metaphysical. It goes beyond even time and even death itself, right? This is an amazing promise. This is a covenant, a vow that far exceeds even our vows to one another in our marriage union. And yet this is the promise that God has made for us, for his beloved, for his bride, the church. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, marriage vows, those are kind of a Western thing, right? This is a Western cultural thing. But I would argue that this is actually where the Western culture gets, emulates God's design right? Right? Because all throughout Scripture, you see God making these parallels between the marriage vow and the covenant. And whether it's found in the book of Hosea, where his wife Gomer is faithless to her husband, or we see a vivid picture of Judah's faithfulness to her covenant with God, or faithlessness in Malachi, where God no longer receives the sacrifices of his people because they do not honor their covenants with their wives. And even in Ezekiel, when God is making parallels between this idea of marriage vow being a covenant, demonstrating to whom. You belong. He says, I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. And so through marriage, God is revealing that his love is bound by a covenant and received by faith. But through marriage, God is also revealing that his love is bound by covenant, which secures an unconditional love. It's an unconditional love think about this. Why does God bind himself in the marriage in the form of a covenant? You know, if you think about it, God, when he speaks, he does what he says, right? This is what Numbers 23 tells us, like, does he not speak and act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so if you think about it, God didn't have to express his love for us in the form of a covenant so that he would, you know, make good on his promise. It wasn't like, God said, oh, you know, it's going to be hard to love you at times, so I better express my love in the form of a covenant in case there are times where I don't really want to love you anymore. No, in fact, I think God, we know that God's word is his bond. I think God created in the form of a covenant to remind us that we can be secure in his love, that his love will endure, and that he will be faithful, and it is in a promise and in a language that we can understand. And so we live in the safety and security of that covenant, that his love is unconditional, it's unchanging, it's inseparable, it's enduring. And you see in Romans 8, through this long list of conditions, good and bad, high and low, we're told that no matter what the condition, what his love is like, it's unconditional. And his desire is that we picture that same type of love in our own marriages to his glory, right? An unconditional love. You know, a couple months ago, like I said, Kim and I celebrated our 15th anniversary, and I was just thinking about our decade and a half together. It's hard to believe how quickly it's gone, and we've had lots of ups and downs. I mean, I know there's people that have been married far longer than 15 years, but as many of you know, four years ago, you know, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. A few years ago, we went, I went through a season of depression, and, you know, we experienced the joy of having three beautiful children. We've experienced, you know, the the heartache of losing a child to miscarriage. We've gone through a lot in 15 years. But it made me realize that our marriage has been tested and it's persevered through all kinds of conditions, good and bad, high and low. And it dawned on me that through my marriage, God has given me a glimpse of what it means to have unconditional love for another person and what it means to receive unconditional love from another person. And it's because of our promise to one another that requires enduring all conditions that our love is sustained. And this is just a small, small glimpse of God's great, unconditional, persevering love for us. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says, God says to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You see, through marriage, God provides a picture of his everlasting love because marriage is making a promise that this love will endure. It will last. It will continue to the very end. It's faithful. And the world wants to marginalize this kind of love. It wants to look down on marriage. But even the greatest philosophical minds of our culture today know that You know, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, right? As Beyonce says. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Prove to me that you're committed until the very end. This is a unique kind of love, right? That says, I promise to love you with a love that endures. And when you begin to see marriage in light of this divine relationship, you begin to realize why divorce is such a big deal to God, don't you? Why he stands against it. In fact, in, in the book of Malachi, as I mentioned before, the very last book of the Old Testament, God's people are lamenting that God is no longer receiving sacrifices from Him. Them. And he explains to them why. He says, look, you guys aren't honoring your marriage covenants with your wives. I can't receive your offerings. Because to God, our relationship with our spouse is so important because it mirrors our relationship with him. He designed one to point to the other, right? God wants us to be faithful to our vows because he wants us to know that he will always, always be faithful to his. You see, under his covenant, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love, his love. And this is his faithful promise of love to us. You could advance past this Beyonce slide. I think it's a little distracting now. (laughs) But this is his promise to us. This is a love that is so great that God in Christ would condescend to become a man, enter into time and space, present himself as the bridegroom, and reconcile us to himself by bearing our punishment on a cross. And in a remarkable exchange, when I enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus, I receive a new life. I get a new name. He assumes my debts. I assume his inheritance. And both my identity and my destiny are forever changed. And just as a spouse receives that marriage vows by faith, the only way to enter into this relationship and to receive Jesus' covenant is also, again, by faith. So now that we've made some connections, I think, between the marriage union and God's desired relationship with us, with me, what does that mean for my marriage? How do I find the motivation to live out this truth in my day-to-day life? I mean, We've all been there. If anyone's been married, there are days when, let's face it, um, your spouse is very unlovable. There are days when you are very unlovable. And yet, in this relationship, God is calling us to love one another without condition, without reciprocation. Right? And it's really hard. You know, there's this episode in Everybody Loves Raymond when um, his wife is, um, her name is escaping me, is going through PMS. And this is a sensitive topic, but she's going through PMS, and then he's, she wants to just be hugged. She's communicating to him, just love me even this time of the month, right? Just hug me. And he looks at her and goes, but you're, you're unhuggable, <laughs> right? And that's what marriage is. There'll these moments when we are unhuggable, when we're unlovable, when we don't deserve the love from our spouse, when we are picking fights. And yet it's interesting in the New Testament when there's a call to do anything, we're always told to turn our eyes towards Jesus and to let his life and his love be the model and the motivation to do what God is calling us to do, right? And so I just want to highlight a few verses, and I'm going to tie everything up here. Because in the end, you know, we can teach good theology, we can teach what the Bible says, but until, but until it's actually practiced, until it's obeyed, until it's lived out, what does it really mean? What power does it really bring into your life? You know, in Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, so what's the, what's the command here? It's to be kind, to be kind to one another, especially your spouse. How difficult it is sometimes to be just something as simple as kind to our husband and our wives. And yet God calls us to this not because your spouse is kind to you, or your your spouse is forgiving towards you, but He says as God in Christ forgave you. And so it's not contingent upon the way your spouse responds to you. It's contingent on God having already forgiven you. You see? It's God's love that empowers you to do, to be kind, to forgive, to love. The next verse, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved you us and gave himself up for us again when your spouse is unlovable we're called to love not because they're lovable but because christ loved us gave himself up for us in hebrews 12 1 and 2 it says let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to jesus who endured the cross for those of us who are at the end of our rope in our marriages. We don't want to endure. We don't want to persevere anymore. We're ready to call it quits. How do you endure? Where do you find the gumption and the power to persevere? You look at Christ. You look to Jesus, who did what? He endured the cross. Right? Scorning its shame. Last verse, Philippians 2, 3, and 5 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, who, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This verse tells us to put the interests of the other person before our own. How can you do that? It's so unnatural. It's so against our flesh. And yet, this is the command. And how do we do this? Because we look at Christ, who made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, when my son Timothy, um, he's 11 now, but five years ago or so, when he was about six, I remember him working on a jigsaw puzzle, and he, you know, he made some good momentum. He was doing what, you know, everyone tells their kids to do, you know, work the edges, find the straight edges, work the perimeter, right, start there. And he was making good progress, and then he kind of hit a wall, and there was this big gaping hole in the middle of his jigsaw puzzle and he started to get frustrated right he started to throw up his hands and he was ready to call quits he's like i don't want to do this anymore and like any good father i was laying on his bed watching him struggle (laughs) and and then um it just hit me you know i was like tim go get the box go get the box it's going to help you finish the puzzle and so he was ready to call he didn't want to get the box and that you know a few times of encouragement and he finally grabbed the box he sets it in front of him and then he starts to finish the puzzle and you know it's not like it all came together all at once it was still work but what was an exercise in pure frustration became a joy he began to see piece by piece this picture was coming together and he kept looking down at his puzzle and he kept looking up at the box he gets stuck he looked look at the box he turned his eyes back towards the puzzle. One by one, it all came together. And when he was done, there was a perfect replica of the picture, the beautiful picture on that box. And it dawned on me that, you know, this is exactly, I think, what God designed marriage to be. Here we have a puzzle. It's really hard at times, isn't it? It's difficult. We get stuck. We get frustrated. Sometimes we even want to call it quits. And yet what the Bible tells us is, look at the box. Look at Christ in the church. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and his bride. That is your model. That is your motivation. And when you get stuck, you just turn your eyes back on the final design. And when you make progress, you will begin to picture, to a watching world, the gospel embodied in your marriage. That is the wisdom of God. Now, a few words just for... Um, I know we're, I'm talking to a lot of different groups here. Not all of you are married. And let me start with anyone who um, has been divorced or has been experienced a divorce. Um, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. You know, um, i not trying to cast judgment here. There are biblical reasons for divorce. But I also want to encourage you with the truth that no matter what kind of rejection... You may have experienced in marriage or divorce. God is faithful. God is faithful to you, even if your spouse is not. And let the challenges of your own experience in marriage lead you to a heavenly hope. Because we know in every way that we fail in our love for our spouse, or he or she fails in their love for us, we have a Savior who has perfectly succeeded in his love for us. Now, for those who are single and yet long to be married, my heart goes out to you, but I want to encourage you with the promise that everything that God has created marriage to be can be found in Christ and more. Because that is what marriage was designed by God to point us to in the first place. So just as married couples are to glorify God in their marriage, Glorify God in your singlehood. This is why the Apostle Paul, the same guy who in Ephesians 5 is expounding upon the glories of marriage as a picture of the gospel, he actually says in another letter, look, I don't care if you get married or not. I actually prefer that you not get married. Why? Because he says, look, you can do more as a single person for God's kingdom. And Paul's not like bipolar or schizophrenic here. I mean, to him, the overarching principle is not even marriage itself. It's not even their happiness It's God and his glory. But God has created the world in such a way that if you pursue his glory, you will find happiness. You will find joy. That is the secondary benefit. And lastly, there are some of you in this room who are married, but you're really struggling in your marriage. Um, You're perhaps on the brink of divorce. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your spouse who's really struggling with the idea of continuing in marriage. And I want to both challenge and encourage you. That God created marriage to be a sacred covenant because he wanted it to picture Jesus' faithfulness in his covenant to you. So when we are faithful in our marriage covenant to our spouse, regardless of the conditions, we are actually being faithful in projecting God's covenant to our spouse, to our children, to a watching world. What a testament this is to the unbreakable, enduring love that God has for us. I want to close with one last story here. Um, As you guys probably know, I almost talk about it in every other sermon. Um, You know, my wife, Cam, for those of you who are relatively new to the church, um, she was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma, which is a form of cancer, um, about four and a half years ago. And. Um, I remember clearly it was like Friday night. We went into the, you know, um, the hospital or the ER because she was having some stomach issues. And by Saturday, we were like, okay, let's get some medication for an ulcer and let's get out of here. And then by Sunday, she was on the operating table in ICU because there was a 3-inch tumor in her chest, and, and she was in stage 4, just spread everywhere. And to be honest, the doctors weren't even concerned about the cancer at that point. They were more concerned about all this fluid that had built up around her heart. She had this pericardial effusion. And it was actually so much, putting so much pressure on her heart that she was, her heart was beginning to have on the verge of failing. And so the doctors were like, look, forget the cancer. we got to deal with this right now. And so on a Sunday morning, which never happens right, unless it's an emergency, they, they got in there and they just started to relieve some of the fluid and the pressure. And I remember, you know, we left at like midnight on a Friday night, didn't even tell our kids, and I didn't even get a chance to get home until Sunday night after she was operated on, and she was just resting in the ICU after this major surgery. And I get to, um, I get home and I put the kids down, and then I get a call from, from a nurse in the ICU. And she's crying. And she says you know, Peter, you've you got to come to the hospital now. She could just barely get the words out. She says, Please come, your your wife needs you. And you know, everything was so touch and go. And you know, you hear these words and you don't even know what to think. I mean Thursday I thought everything was fine. Sunday I'm jumping in my car and I'm driving as fast as I can to the hospital. And this isn't a moment that you can really prepare for. And I remember my mind is racing, and all these thoughts are going through my head. I'm trying to barter with God. And I remember thinking, just halfway through that drive, it hit me. Like, this could be it. This could be the last time you see your wife alive. What are you going to say to her? And I remember, like, I had no words. And I was so overcome with this anxiety. And I thought, what what do I say? I say, I love you? That seems so incomplete. Do I say, you complete me? (laughs) That seems so Jerry Maguire. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just remember praying in that moment, like, Lord, just give me the words to say. I don't know what I would say in this moment, and I want to give her a word if this is it. And I remember... Not a few seconds had passed and suddenly the Lord just gave me a word and he just said it was perfect. And I remember thinking this is from the Lord. And if I see her and this is it, this is what I'm gonna say. And it was just run to Jesus. Just three words. Run to Jesus. And I remember in that moment I thought, It's so perfect, because you know, I'd been mulling over some of these ideas in my head for the, the year prior. And I realized in that moment when my wife was on the precipice of entering into eternity that it's not even about me and her. My marriage isn't even my own. She doesn't ultimately even belong to me. Marriage is just a stewardship. We have our wives, we have our husbands for an indeterminate number of years. And then it's over. In fact, Jesus tells us when we get to heaven, there there will be no more marriage on earth. Or in heaven as we know it on earth, right? Why? Because everything that God created marriage to be will find its fulfillment in heaven, our union with Christ. Now we know why the Bible opens with a marriage in Genesis, and it closes with a wedding in Revelation. Why a marriage metaphor is used from the first prophet in the Old Testament to the very last. Why John the Baptist introduces Jesus as what? As the bridegroom. And why Paul says he's jealous for his betrothed. We see why Christ performs his first miracle where? At a wedding in Cana. And he sets his last parable when he's teaching his disciples at a wedding. You see, marriage is God's creation and God's glory because it shines the light of God's gospel. It's not just a tradition. It's a truth. It's a God, it's a gospel truth, and if you understand God's design, it's telling us some amazing truths about God's great love for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we close in prayer here, and invite us all to just bow our heads as we reflect upon some of these truths. I don't think any of us need to pretend that marriage is not hard. Marriage is hard. Marriage is very hard. But I think that is the great wisdom of God. God didn't intend for it to be easy because I believe he not only created a marriage to be a picture for us, he also made it so difficult that every day of marriage we have to come face to face with the reality that we are in desperate need of the gospel of grace. So marriage not only tells us what and who we need, it shows us how much we need it. And so if you're struggling in your marriage, don't lose hope. This is by God's design. He is showing you that you need his gospel. And so fix your eyes on him. Find the power to love someone who may be unlovable at times, by remembering the one who loves you when you were unlovable. Find the power to endure and persevere by looking to the one who endured and persevered for you. Forgive the one who may not even seek your forgiveness because he has forgiven you. This is the only place you can find the power to do everything that your flesh doesn't want you to do. And so God is telling a story through marriage, and he wants you to hear that story. Do you hear it? It's about his great love for us. God also wants your marriage to tell that same story. And this can only happen when we choose to love as God loves us, and when we honor our covenant as he honors his. So let's just spend another moment in reflection and prayer and the worship team will lead us in a few moments.